Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message. What's up, people? Good to, uh, good to be back with you all. Hope you had a great spring break, great Easter. Uh, tonight, we are picking back up where we left off a few weeks ago with our Beatitude series. And, and to get us kicked off, uh, to get us started, I wanted to uh, share a little bit about a guy that I met the other day. You know, as a, as a pastor, one of my jobs, I get to sit down and, and, and meet with guys. And, yeah, mostly guys, not so much women, but, you know, people will say that. Uh, I get to meet with people, and I get to hear their stories. Uh, and, and sometimes I, I hear a story that's just too good not to share, and, and so that's this guy. I'll, I'll spare some details uh, for privacy, but, but the gist is he came over to uh, the United States, came to Columbia five, six, seven years ago from the Middle East uh, for a Ph.D. program here in town. And, and we were meeting here uh, in, in my office, and, and so because he was in a church, I assumed that he was a Christian, and, but I asked. I said, so, you know, are you a Christian? And he said, yeah, I grew up in a Christian, Christian family. Um, and I said, okay, it was, you know, Middle East, is that common? What was that like? And he said, yeah, you know, uh, I don't take that for granted that I grew up in a Christian home because that certainly didn't come without its consequences, severe consequences. And, and, and he proceeded to tell me, Terrible, terrible things, to be completely honest. Things that, that you and I f- probably will never experience, hopefully will never experience here in the United States. He told me stories of, of people he knew that, that had been kidnapped, people uh, in his extended family that had been taken, held at ransom for, for tens of thousands of dollars in order to be released. He knew of people who had been killed all because of their faith in Jesus. Those stories, though, they weren't just abstract because it got closer to home for him uh, a few years ago. So he's here a few years ago from now. Uh, ISIS took over the city that his family was living in. All of his family still back in the Middle East. He had come over here for school, had never been here, left his family, families back there. ISIS takes over the city. And, and what they did at the time is they set up checkpoints in this city, set up four checkpoints so that you couldn't get in or out of the city without going through them. And, and he said, you know, like, like many Christians in this city, his family, when ISIS took control, decided that they had to flee. And in order to escape, what they did is they, they got all of their money, all of their important documents, all of their, uh, pos- as many of their possessions as they could and, and, and shoved them into a vehicle, got in and, and left. The only problem is they didn't get through the checkpoint. They got caught. And when ISIS caught them, they took everything they had. They took their money, they took their possessions, they, they took their identification, they took everything that they had, and then they beat them with the back of their machine guns. This guy that I was talking to, he's, he's telling me these things. I, I, you know, it's difficult to 
believe these things. It's so unbelievable. I, 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 you know, he didn't know at the time that any of this was happening. He's, he's telling me this from the vantage point of, of learning after the fact. That's because the last time he had had contact with his family was the night before they fled. And so while all of this is happening, they don't have cell phones. They don't have any way of touching base with him. He can't touch base with them. The last he knew was that his family was fleeing an ISIS-controlled city because of their faith in Jesus, and now he hadn't talked to them in a few days, and so what he told me is he said he started to assume that they'd been killed. I mean, imagine that. We don't hear from our family for a few days. That's not what we assume. That's what he started to assume. Well, fortunately, that wasn't the case. They weren't killed. They were able to get through the checkpoint ISIS had taken everything they had, but they let them through. They get to a neighboring town with nothing, no possessions, no identification, no money. But they get to this town, and in this town there's a church, and this church takes them in and eventually gets them to the border, and they think that they're going to flee the country. The problem is they, they don't have any identification. They can't get out. Nothing to prove that they are who they are, and so they're stuck. No home, no money, just literally what they're wearing. And they couldn't do anything about it for weeks, months. They're stuck there. Eventually, though, and this is the crazy part, eventually, though, remember I said they grew up in a Christian household, they realize that, that the church that they'd been baptized in as infants decades prior probably still had a record of their baptism. And so they, they track down that documentation, and it literally becomes the only thing that could prove their identity, their baptism records at this church. That's what allowed them to get the documentation that they needed to get out of the country into the, the, the neighboring country so that they could be safe, at least for now. He's telling me this story, and, and, and I'll be honest, and I don't know how you're thinking about it right now, but like for me, this is the kind of thing that I see in a TV show. It's the kind of thing that, that I see in a movie, the kind of thing that, that I hear in the news, but to be honest, never really internalize because it doesn't really hit close to home for me, but, but for whatever reason, this guy sitting in my office telling me about his family's experience, it brought it close to home. People are being kidnapped. Things like this are really happening. People are being held for ransom, beaten, killed. Right now, in the world, all because of their faith in Jesus. Now you're talking to a guy whose family is living this, and you can't help but ask, what on earth is going through your mind? I mean, you're here, they're there. You can't talk to them. You can't get to them. You can't help. How do you handle that? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What's going on inside of you? He, he's a really sweet guy. He kept calling me Pastor Kyle, and I, I had to keep saying, dude, stop calling me Pastor Kyle. Just call me Kyle. Um, real sweet guy. But when I asked him those questions, he got real serious real somber. And he said, honestly, the one thing going through my mind, the one thing that I was thinking, the one thing that I was feeling was hate. He said, I hated them. ISIS, Muslims, anything to do with the Middle East. Even, even he said, my, my Muslim and Middle Eastern friends here in Colombia, I wanted nothing to do with them. I couldn't stand them, couldn't be around them, couldn't look at them. I hated them. And it wasn't, just, it wasn't just people because he, he said the same thing started to happen with God. He, he started to hate God, couldn't, couldn't stand to read his Bible, couldn't stand to pray. He said he stopped going to church. 
He said, hate consumed me. I wasn't myself. It turned me into someone that I wasn't. Now, somewhat of a sidebar here is, isn't that kind of what hate always does to us? Hate consumes us. It changes us. It turns us into people that we aren't. That's exactly what happened to him. But that was all a few years ago. What about now? There's a plot twist because when I said, okay, now what? He said, well, actually, I've, I've got some news to share. And I said, okay. And he said, uh, in a few weeks, I'm moving to a city that has the largest, second largest, well, it's got the largest Muslim population in the world outside of the Middle East. And I was like, what? He said, yeah. I said, I said, okay, like, is that, you know, divine providence, like happenstance, chance, like you just get stuck, you know, you're getting a job. And now he said, no, 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 I'm going on purpose. I'm going to this city on purpose. I said, why? And he said, so I can partner with the Christian church there and share the gospel with that community. Now, I don't know. I'm a pastor. I feel like I've heard it all. I did not expect him to say that. I want to go to that place so that I can partner with the Christian church and share the gospel to a group of people that for a time in my life, I hated them. I, again, I'm just kind of struck, dumbfounded. I'm saying, why? How? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't have said why. I'm a pastor, right? But I said it. I was like, why? How? What, what's going on? You know, how do you go from despising a group of people to sharing the gospel with them? How do you go from, from, from being so consumed by, by hate and anger toward a certain group of people for, for what's happened, not just out there, but literally what's happened to your family? How do you go from that to showing compassion and love to them? It's crazy, isn't it? I said he got real somber, now he got real smiley. Big smile on his face, and he looked at me, and he said, because I realized that's exactly what Jesus has done for me. That is exactly what Jesus has done for me. Because of my sin, I was Jesus' enemy, and yet Jesus loved me enough to die for me. I was his enemy, but he forgave me. He forgives me, and he tells me to go and do the same, he said to me. Then he said, you know, I, I can love because I know that I'm loved by Jesus. I can forgive because I know that I'm forgiven. I can show compassion and kindness and mercy because that's exactly what Jesus has done. That's exactly what Jesus is doing for me right now. I didn't deserve any of that, he said. But that's what Jesus has done in my life, and so now I want to go and do the same for others. What a story. Replacing hate with love, bitterness with compassion, condescension with kindness, anger with forgiveness and grace. I can't think of a better example of the beatitude that Jesus wants us to reflect on tonight. It comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. It simply says this, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, it's been a few weeks, and so I want to remind us, remember what these Beatitudes are all about, right? They're about being happy. They're about flourishing. They're about living as God wants us, intended us, created us to live. So we think happiness is having our dreams come true. 
We think that, that happiness is getting what we want. Happiness is, is being on a beach for spring break. Happiness is, is getting an awesome internship. Happiness is, is turning 21. Happiness is having a boyfriend or a girlfriend or, or getting good grades or, or having some achievement, whatever it is. All good things, right? All good things, sure. But Jesus says, no, he says happy, flourishing, the good life, what? Are those who show mercy. The merciful. Now, I want us to take a second, pause, think to yourself about what Jesus is actually saying. Think about what Jesus is actually saying when he says that blessed are the merciful. He's saying true happiness, real happiness. You and I will be most happy because this is how Jesus created us to live. We will be most happy when we're merciful. When we show mercy, when we show kindness, when we show love and forgiveness and compassion and grace to other people. Now here's a question. Before right now, right in this moment, before I just said that, is that how you think about happiness? If I were to have asked you, what does it mean to be happy, would, would you have said, oh, it means to show mercy? I'm guessing not. And you're not alone, because to be honest, until I started reflecting on these verses, I wouldn't have either. And in many ways, that's because showing mercy, being merciful toward others, it's not exactly trending right now in our culture, is it? Of course not. We're too divided, too outraged, disagree on you name it. And because of that, it's far easier to hate and cancel than love. Antagonizing is more convenient than peacemaking. More on that next week. We have animosity, not compassion, for people who think different, look different, live differently than us. And so have patience, be kind, forgive when people make mistakes. No way, not now, not in this cultural moment. You see, our culture too often says, not blessed are those who show mercy, blessed are the merciful. No, our culture often says, blessed are those who show no mercy. No mercy. Why? Because that's how you become strong. That's how you become mighty. Mercy is weakness. Mercy is failure. Mercy won't get you anywhere in this life. See, that's the air that we're breathing. That's what our culture is saying. That, that is literally the air that we're breathing. And whether we know it or not, that air is suffocating us because it's toxic. It's creating greater and greater unhappiness. It's leading us further and further away from flourishing, further and further away from living as Jesus intended us to live, what Jesus wants for us. I think we kind of intuitively, like, I don't think that what I'm saying right now is rocket science. I think we kind of intuitively know this. It's why when we hear stories of, of people showing love, people showing great acts of, of, of mercy and compassion and kindness and grace, like, like that guy I mentioned earlier, loving his enemy, it's, it's why they're so moving. It's why they're so life-giving. We know that, that being unmerciful, showing no mercy... It's, it's suffocating us. And so when we hear and see and experience these things, it's like a breath of fresh air in an otherwise smoggy atmosphere that's killing us. Jesus says, blessed, happy, flourishing are the merciful. We show mercy. We, we, we said this earlier. We show mercy precisely because that's what Jesus has done for us. 
Jesus has been, Jesus is, Jesus will be, will continue to be merciful to us. And so what does it actually mean, though, right? Because that, we've got to ask that question. What does it actually mean to show mercy, to be merciful? Lots of things that we could say, lots of places in the Bible that we could go, but I think at least one of the most obvious comes from a pretty, known, pretty well-known parable, short story, uh, in the Gospel of Luke. We'll pick it up in Luke chapter 10, uh, verse 25. So this is what Matthew says. He says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to, etern- to inherit eternal life? So, so just pause for a second. We don't know a lot about this guy, whoever he is, but what we do know is that he's some sort of expert in the law. He, he knows his Old Testament really well. And he stands up and he's got a question, but it's not a sincere question, right? Because he's not super concerned, doesn't really care about the answer. Instead, we're told that he stands up to what? To test Jesus. That's what he really wants. He wants to test him. Jesus doesn't fall for the bait, right? He doesn't answer the guy's question. He, he, he answers by asking his own question. Verse 26. What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? In other words, Jesus is saying to him, what do you think? The guy answers, love your Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So he's the expert, right? Knows his Old Testament. He starts quoting Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. And Jesus says, next verse, he says, yeah, you've answered correctly. Good job. Do this and you'll live. Practice what you preach. It's that simple. Do those things. But he's not done. The guy doesn't let it go. Next verse. But he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So he gives Jesus the right answer. Jesus says, yeah, great, go and do it. And then he presses and says, okay, but, but let's get a little bit honest here, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? You see what he's doing? He's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, Jesus, okay, who's in, who's out? Who exactly is my neighbor? What exactly are you requiring of me? Who exactly is it? I want to know. Tell me. Make it very crystal clear for me. Who do I have to love? This is where Jesus starts telling a story. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. Real quick, here's a picture of what's known as, yeah, there it is. This is the the area of the Jericho Road in Israel. Right now, this is taken from a few years ago. This is the the landscape, the topography of the the path that travelers would take to and from uh, Jerusalem, back and forth to and from Jerusalem and Jericho. And and I show this to you because, you know, sometimes we hear these stories, we read these stories in the Bible, and and it's difficult to conceptualize what's actually happening. This isn't exactly a walk in the park, is it? I mean, the the path from Jericho to Jerusalem, it was like 17, 18 miles of rocky desert terrain. Depending on which direction you were headed, it was either a 3,600-foot elevation drop or gain. Historically speaking, robbers were notorious along that route because, as you can see, there's, there's little cover. There's no protection for people as they're traveling. And so... Essentially what happens is they become easy prey. 
And in Jesus' story, that's exactly what happens, right? Robbers pounce on a lone traveler. They strip him of his clothes. They beat him, and they leave him on the road, half dead, and go on. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. He passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, saw him, well, he passed by on the other side. So two different men, two different times, same response. Same response to a bloodied and beaten and half-dead man laying on the side of the road. They pass on by. They keep on going. Now, we can't lose this detail. Keep in mind, who are these two guys? They're religious guys, right? First, a priest, you know, who, who would have obviously served in the temple but then also a Levite who wasn't a priest, but he, Levites assisted priests in, in various temple activities, temple services. And so, so these were religious men who knew God's commands, commands like love your neighbor as yourself, and yet they can't be bothered. They see the man and they don't want to deal with him. Verse 33, but a Samaritan a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now there's a word, compassion. See, the religious men, they're calloused, but this Samaritan, Jesus says, had compassion. Now, we got to catch this, right, because, because to Jesus' audience, when Jesus said that the Samaritan had compassion for this, this half-dead, this beaten and bloodied and, and naked Jew laying on the side of the road, it would have been shocking. It would have been unthinkable because Samaritans and Jews, they didn't help each other. They didn't show compassion to each other. No, they hated each other. Samaritans and Jews hated one another. For reasons that I don't have time to get into, Jews thought of Samaritans as, as ritually defiled, ethnic half-breeds, a racially mixed group of, of part Jewish, part Gentile, part non-Jew. And so Jews and Samaritans, they're, they're separated by history, they're separated by race, they're separated by religion, and as a result, there's a constant animosity between the two. There's a constant hate. Jews hate Samaritans, Samaritans hate Jews, and yet here we are, we've got a Samaritan who sees and shows compassion to a half-dead Jew laying on the side of the road. Compassion. But that's not all, because his compassion, it moves him to action. Next verse, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. You may have. So, so not only does he have compassion, not only does he stop, not only does he see him, not only does he have compassion, he goes to him and he bandages his wounds. He pours oil on the wound, which would have kept the wound soft. He pours wine on the wound, which would have helped disinfect it. Surely in the process, it's messy, it's bloody. He's got the guy in his arms, in his lap. But that wasn't enough because he takes him, he puts him on his donkey, and he gets him to, a, to an inn, and he gives the innkeeper a couple days' worth of wages, which was no insignificant amount of money, and says, please take care of him. 
And then he goes a step further and says, I'll come back. I'll come back, and when I do, any extra expense, any added expense, any expense that, that you incur as a result of caring for this guy that I haven't already provided, I'll come back and I'll cover all of the remaining expenses. No limitations, no strings attached. It's a shocking story for Jesus' listeners because doing all of this, of course, it wasn't easy for the Samaritan. It cost him time. It cost him money. He had to lay his pride aside, his hatred for this Jew, for all Jews. He, helping this guy was risky for all sorts of reasons, for all sorts of reasons. Helping this guy, it didn't make sense. He was an enemy, and yet he has compassion. He has compassion. This is how the story ends. Jesus says to the man, he says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Show mercy. This is a picture of a group of people in Syria uh, known as the White Helmets. Officially, they're known as the Syrian Civil Defense, but White Helmets has become kind of a nickname for, for them. Um, they're a volunteer group that works in parts of opposition-controlled Syria and Turkey. You know what they do? You know what these guys with White Helmets, what they do? Their job is literally to run into places, run into cities, run into buildings that have just blown up, been bombed. They run into the blast zone and, and dig people out of the rubble after they've been blown up by a bomb. That's what's happening in this picture. There's a man, I don't, you can't quite see, but he's being drug out. He's, he's covered by rubble. A bomb has just blown up the surrounding area, and, and they rush in, and they're uncovering him. It's highly, highly dangerous work because oftentimes what, what's now happening is, is these guys dropping bombs. What they're realizing is that this group is running in to, to rescue these people. And so what happens is they drop a bomb and they fly away. And then when they, they wait for a second while all these people come to help, and then they circle back and drop a bomb on top of them all. Ruthless, terrible, highly dangerous as of a couple years ago, just a couple years into this group forming, over 200 white helmets had lost their lives trying to rescue others who had been left for dead. Trying to help. Every single time they ran into that rubble, they knew that they were taking a risk. They knew that it might cost them their very lives. And yet for them, that risk, it paled, it paled in comparison to the experience of pulling someone out of that rubble. Get this, to date, they've rescued over 100,000 people from these situations. 100,000 people, men, women, children, people who had been trapped, people who had been buried, people who had been left for dead. They got them out. I was watching an interview in, in, in one of these white helmets. He said, um, he said this, he said, every time we rescue someone, every time we pull them out, every time we uncover them, every time we dig through the rock and the rubble and the, the debris, 
lift off huge boulders on top. Every time we rescue someone, we feel as if though we've brought that person back to life. We feel as though we've brought that person back. That's showing mercy. That is showing mercy to other people. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a beautiful example of what it looks like to show mercy to each other. Literally sometimes, but also metaphorically other times, running into the blast zone of people's lives, entering into the rubble, entering into the messiness, not passing by, but seeing people, really seeing people, taking time to see them in their need. And because we see them, we lean in. We lean in to the disasters. We lean in to the injustice. We lean in to the tragedy. We lean in to their need with love and compassion and kindness. And in so doing, we give them life. We give them life. See, it's no wonder that Jesus says if you want to be happy, if you really want to be happy, be merciful because it's giving people life. But who are we to be merciful to? That's where we get hung up, right? We have the same question the expert had. Who are we supposed to be merciful with? Jesus says everyone. Everyone. And so if that's true, then we've got to ask the question, Who are the people in our life that we're just walking by? It's it's hard to admit. But but who are the people this week that you'll just be tempted to walk on by? Think to yourself, someone else can deal with it. I don't have time for that. It's too messy, too inconvenient, too uncomfortable, too risky for me. What about the people that we don't really like? And I'm not supposed to say that. But we all have those people. People we don't really like, people that are hard to love. What about the people that we think don't deserve our mercy? Ah, They don't deserve it. They don't deserve my love. They don't deserve my compassion. They don't deserve kindness because of what they've done. Who are those people for you? We all have them, don't we? I mean, we've all got people like that. Who are they? Here's a different question. What if that's how Jesus treated us? What if that's how Jesus treated us? Just passed by, didn't care. They're my enemies. Why would I help them? They don't deserve my love. What if that's what Jesus did with us? What if that's how Jesus treated us? See, of course we don't deserve Jesus' love. Of course we don't deserve it. We, we, we sometimes think that we do, right? Like we think we're good people. We do right stuff. We come to Veritas. We go to small group. We read our, we're good. And so we deserve, we deserve, we deserve. No, we don't. No, you don't. No, I don't. We don't deserve it. We were his enemy. We read that verse earlier from Romans 5. We were Jesus' enemy because of our sin, and yet he died for us. He rose from the grave for us. We just celebrated that this last weekend. And he delights to do that. He delights to show us his compassion, his mercy, his love. And because of that, we of all people should be people who delight to do the same for others. 
See, we show mercy to others because that's precisely what Jesus has done for us. Blessed are those who show mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Music team, go ahead and come back. I, I want to close. I want to close uh, by sharing a really cool opportunity to kind of put this into practice. Really cool opportunity that, that we have here tonight to show mercy. An opportunity that, that I think is, is the perfect opportunity to show the love, the compassion, the kindness of Jesus to people right here in Columbia. If you were at any of the Easter services this past weekend at the crossing, you already know this, but, but if not, right now in Columbia, as of this past Friday, there are 536 families living in Columbia on the, it's called the utility disconnect list. What does that mean? Well, it means kind of like it sounds. It, it means literally unless something changes, unless some drastic change happens, these families are about to have their lights shut off. 536 families, 536 households, the power is going to go off, and in many cases, these families are going to be evicted. 536 families right here in our community pretty soon. Our church, The Crossing, we're hoping to do something about that. We went to the city and we said, what can we do to help? And they said, well, you know, if you could raise $400,000, that would completely erase the debt for all of these families and then some. And so that's what we're going to do. That's what we've been trying to do. That's what we, we talked about Sunday, and it's what we're talking about now. Giving these families a fresh start, helping them, giving hope, giving life. In a few minutes, Alex is going to talk and share some details about specifically how we can do this. But just let me say this. In a, in a real way, I think in a real way, this is a great opportunity for you and me, for us, this community, Veritas, to run into the rubble to run into the blast zone, to lean in, to see people, to help people desperately in need. Because remember, why do we do these kinds of things? Why do we show mercy? It's not because we're good people, right? No. It's because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, Please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, Follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.